Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Raven is released weekly and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to The Raven, a production of Tenderfoot TV in association with Odyssey. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Good afternoon, I'm Jovita Moore. Atlanta police say they've connected Baltimore Ravens linebacker Ray Lewis to the double homicide in Buckhead. Two men were stabbed to death early last Monday morning after a Super Bowl party in a nightclub. A stretch navigator... Um, we arrived, we knocked on the door, Ray Lewis was in the living room, he was on the phone, we were talking to his mother, and I remember him saying, Mama, they're going to arrest me for murder, and, you know, we told him it was actually two counts of murder, and then we asked him to hang up the phone, and he was quite emotional, he wasn't, you know, all out bawling like a baby or anything, but he was quite upset. That's the voice of former Atlanta homicide detective Brett Zimbrick. Zimbrick arrested Lewis the day after the stabbings on the order of his lieutenant, Mike Smith. According to Zimbrick, the decision to arrest Lewis troubled many in the department. The decision was made to issue warrants before we talked to Mr. Lewis, and I think some of the detectives probably would have done it differently. My opinion was at that time, and still is at this time, is that we should have taken the time to sit down and listen to what he had to say. And, you know, where is he going to go? I mean, is he going to run, go play professional football in South America? We're never going to see him again. I don't know what the harm was in waiting, but those are decisions that were made by people that got paid a whole lot more money than we did. I would love to ask Ray Lewis if he planned to cooperate if he was willing to give Atlanta PD everything it needed to make this a slam dunk case. But at this time, Lewis and his team have been unresponsive to our request for an interview. That being said, it's important to note that Ray Lewis was never really given a chance to cooperate, and that's because of Lieutenant Mike Smith, the man who put the greatest middle linebacker of all time on defense. Tenderfoot TV. I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Episode 4, Piedmont Park in the Summertime. Shit. See, I'm going. 
Well, man, you know, I had a really unique opportunity because when I hit Atlanta um, after graduating from law school, there just weren't a whole bunch of folks like me. Totally understand. You know? Yeah. There weren't a bunch of black male prosecutors in Atlanta, you know? That's the voice of Clint Rucker, Atlanta Fulton County's former assistant DA and a key member of the team that prosecuted Ray Lewis, Joseph Sweeting, and Reginald Oakley. The murder trial crumbled on live television. Witnesses backtracked on their stories. Defense attorneys eviscerated the credibility of many witnesses. It got so bad that prosecutors had to drop murder charges against Ray Lewis in the middle of the trial. In talking to Rucker, I'm curious to learn what went wrong. Because when it comes to the prosecution in this case, it doesn't seem like anything went right. I knew who Ray Lewis was. I had watched him play throughout the years. But at the time, I did not appreciate fully what I have come to understand now, that he occupies a really high level of respect within his profession. He had the commissioner of football making comments. This was a big, big deal. The fight and the murders happened about 4 a.m. And I learned about it the way most people learned about it, which was I had stayed up late watching the Super Bowl that night before. I watched it on the news the next morning. And then my phone started blowing up with calls to get into the office right away. We are having this meeting at the Atlanta Homicide Office. It's probably about 10 o'clock when everybody's all assembled. The accusations very early on was that Ray Lewis was involved in some kind of shape, form, or fashion. We had rumors of shots being fired, total chaos. And for Atlanta, particularly then in 2000, which had branded itself as the city that was too busy to hate, we got a double homicide right in the middle of Buckhead. It was just a nightmare. And I've got a lieutenant who was sent to conduct the very first interview with Ray Lewis, probably, in retrospect, the most important interview in the whole entire case. The first interview of Lewis was conducted by Lieutenant Mike Smith. You get a a chance to sit down with the person that we believe is responsible and ultimately behind this and led to the cover-up. This is our shot, and he's going to let us in. We could talk to him unimpeded, without a lawyer present, and ask him some questions. And in my opinion, we just blew it. I don't think Lieutenant Smith was prepared to go talk to him. I don't think he knew enough about the facts of the case to talk to him and know when to confront him and when not to confront him and when to ask him stuff and what to ask him. Two, I think he underestimated the environment. I don't think that in his mind, he really fully appreciated the significance of what he was getting ready to do. And I think as a professional, when you don't do that, it leaves you open to miss things. You just miss things. Lewis was an eyewitness, could identify almost everyone in his limo, and halfway through a $26 million contract, he had by far the most to lose. 
Instead of looking at Lewis as an incredible source of information, Lieutenant Smith treated the linebacker as an adversary. A few days later, a witness came forward with a key piece of evidence, the Sports Authority receipt that showed the purchase of punch blades on Ray Lewis's credit card. The witness was black, and Smith asked him out of nowhere what his nickname was. The witness was taken aback, which prompted Smith to double down. Come on, Smith said, all you people have nicknames. The witness stormed out of the interview. Detective Allen chased after him, apologized profusely, and included Smith's comment and the witness's reaction in his official report. I spoke to Lieutenant Smith over the phone and listened to his side of that story. But I was con considered to be the racist, remember? Because I asked about the nickname. And you tell me anybody you know that doesn't have a nickname. Because I said African-American, that was considered racist. When Bill Campbell, the mayor at the time, had a nickname, Bill Clinton had a nickname, everybody I knew had a nickname. But because I said all African-Americans have a nickname, that was considered the racist thing. Lieutenant Smith's comment and decision to arrest Lewis put the prosecution in a bind. But they were just two of many, many mistakes, according to Clint Rucker. People say a lot of times, oh, we're going to treat it just like every other case. No, you're not. No, you're not. And for you to go into it and pretend like it's not different, you're setting yourself up to make some of the same kind of mistakes that we made. Inexperienced crime scene techs didn't correctly process the scene. They threw away all the broken glass, including the glass from the champagne bottle that Baker broke over Oakley's head. Information was leaked. Detectives battled internally, and the other men in the limo Kwame King, Carlos Stafford, Gino, Claudius. Rucker couldn't get in touch with any of them. Once we got each and every person identified that was in the limousine, and we wanted to talk to them as witnesses, each and every one hired criminal defense lawyers. And so when we approached the lawyers, they're saying, I'm not letting you talk to my clients. You know, my client didn't have anything to say. Rucker's inability to interview King, Stafford, Gino, or Claudius left the prosecution with only one key witness from Lewis's limo, the driver, Dwayne Fassett. I personally spoke with Mr. Fassett after he was interviewed by the Atlanta Police Department. He broke it down to me in detail. And I spent a couple of minutes talking to Mr. Fassett, trying to build some rapport, and we talked about Baltimore, and we talked about him and his family, and... You know, it was just idle stuff to kind of get him to relax a little bit. I think he immediately sensed that he was in trouble. He was responsible for the limo. The limo had been damaged. But now he knows that there have been two people that have been murdered by the occupants of his limousine that he's been riding around with all day. You could just see it on his face. He was just really pained by having to participate in this. But he was willing, and I specifically focused on the backstory. So I learned that he had driven for Ray Lewis many times before in the past in Baltimore. And it's the first time I got a sense of the extravagance that Ray Lewis lived. This guy made a really great living because he was Ray Lewis's preferred driver. And so he treated Mr. Fawcett really well. When I say treat him well, I'm talking about He's taking care of my kids. 
He's buying stuff for my wife. He's buying stuff for the house. And so they had a really, really close relationship. And it was hard for him to tell me what he told me about Ray Lewis that could be considered a negative. But I feel like he felt compelled to do it because, uh, as he explained to me, he saw a side of Ray Lewis that night that he had never really seen before. The way that it unfolded, we know from Mr. Fawcett that once everybody re-entered the limousine after the two stabbings had occurred, is that there was lots of yelling, there was lots of screaming, there was lots of chaos inside the limousine, according to Mr. Fawcett, and that Ray Lewis absolutely took control and told everybody to shut the fuck up. And I am not gonna let you motherfuckers ruin my career. That they were all supposed to get their shit and get the fuck out of town. Detective Allen believes it was unlikely that anyone except the killers knew that weapons were involved in the fight until Lawler and Baker's bodies were lifeless on the ground. By the time Lewis's group jumped back in the limo, reality set in and panic followed. That's where, according to Facet, Ray Lewis captured everyone's attention and outlined a clear directive, a skill he was renowned for on the football field. Everybody watching tonight. So I tell you what, if you get fired into the neck, you're in the wrong business. We control us. We run this. When investigators arrived at the limo, Dwayne Fassett was the only one there. Rucker remembers Fassett being exhausted and scared. He was actually afraid of Joseph Sweeting and Reginald Oakley, and he didn't trust them. He didn't have any problem saying very clearly, Sweeting and Oakley are the ones that did the stabbing. They're the ones that held the guys, beat the guys up. He didn't have any problem saying that. Fassett identified Joseph Sweeting and Reginald Oakley as the killers. But what came next wasn't as easy. Rucker implored him to describe the actions of Ray Lewis, his employer, his friend. What Mr. Fassett described was the way that Ray Lewis actually grabbed Mr. Lawler near the tree. And what he did was he grabbed him from behind and pulled his arms back and kind of exposed his chest, you know, like you would restrain a person. And I kind of thought that was particularly egregious because Mr. Lawler was not a big person, right? So if you've got an NFL linebacker who is, who's grabbed you from behind, there's nothing you're going to be able to do about that. And exposing his chest that way, it spoke of deliberation in my mind. As a Raven listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. You never know what's out there, which is why Simply Safe can help you establish a sense of control. I love Simply Safe because it is simple. The setup is fast and easy, and it protects your whole home. Sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. Simply Safe is backed by 24 7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. There are no contracts and a 60 day money back guarantee. 
Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/raven. That's simplysafe.com/raven. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Dwayne Fassett's statement, given hours after witnessing the double homicide, was the backbone of the prosecution's case. And according to Rucker, Fassett detailed Lewis grabbing Lawler near the tree, pulling his arms back, and exposing his chest. Which, if Lewis knew one of his comrades had a weapon, feels like a pretty heinous act. Rucker insists that this alleged act was intentional, calculated. But in restraining Lawler, couldn't Lewis have been trying to prevent Lawler from throwing punches? Did Lewis know that Lawler was being stabbed? I push back on Rucker's claim, and he adds more details to prove his point. He could have thrown the guy to the ground himself. If we're in a fight, okay, we're going to fight. I'm going to get you on the ground. I'm going to kick you a couple times, punch you, jump on you. Everybody's going to jump in, and then after that, it's pretty much over. But the exposing of the chest, which then allowed the finger knife to kind of, you know, hit him twice in the heart, uh, I thought was particularly heinous. And I thought it was the thing that gave Ray Lewis criminal liability. With limo driver Dwayne Fassett as its star witness, the prosecution granted Lewis, Oakley, and Sweeting their right to a speedy trial. All eyes are focused on Atlanta tonight as both sides start laying out their case in the murder trial of Ray Lewis. Jury selection began on May 15th, and the trial began a week later on May 27, 2000. DA Paul Howard told the jury Lewis, that Lewis was a willing participant in the brawl which led to the stabbings of Jacinth Baker and Richard Lawler. And you're gonna be able to follow the blood trail that will lead you directly to these defendants. On day one, a woman testified that she witnessed the killings from her apartment window. I thought he was dead right away. There was blood underneath his head when they picked his head up and when they picked his leg up, there was no response in his body. It was lifeless. Her testimony was compelling, but she wasn't able to identify any of the defendants. Okay, so this is about to start. You have cell phones, turn your cell phone. Welcome on. 
The next witness was the man who brought Lewis's sports authority receipt to investigators. The man was an old family friend of Lewis's and chased Lewis down in the sports authority parking lot after Lewis's in-store autograph session. Lewis wanted to give his new cell number to his old friend and asked Sweeting for a piece of paper to scribble his number on. Sweeting handed him the sports authority receipt. It's unclear whether Lewis was aware that Sweeting used his credit card to purchase the punch blades. The evidence will show that those wounds, according to the medical examiner, were intentional, they were directed and designed for the purpose to kill. The prosecution placed the murder weapons in the hands of Lewis's group, but they also allowed the defense to introduce Lieutenant Smith's comments, which made the Atlanta Homicide Department look inept and prejudiced. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Can you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury your name? My name is Jeffrey Gwen. Jeff Gwen headlined day two of the trial. For the most part, he told the jury what he told us. Oakley started the fight. Lewis attempted to pull Oakley back. He saw a man who wasn't Sweeney or Oakley holding a knife. And when all hell broke loose, he saw Lewis tussling with Lawler, but didn't see Lewis throw a punch. I take a look to my left and I see Ray Lewis and Richard holding each other by, tussling with each other. Sir, would you state your full name? Dwayne Francis Fassett. And uh, Mr. Fassett, would you spare your last name for the court reporter? F-A-S-S-E-T-T. On day three, the prosecution called Fassett its star. The man with a vested interest in Ray Lewis's freedom, who was on record saying that Lewis was involved in the fight. But Rucker explains that when Fassett took the stand, everything fell apart. Once he was actually put underneath the microscope, in the spotlight, sitting in court, on the witness stand, under oath, and asked really hard questions about Ray Lewis, he started to backpedal. He started to minimize, and he started to actually change his statements. And he did it in a way so that it would help Ray Lewis avoid responsibility. When you asked him about Ray Lewis on the stand, he said, hey, you know, I was not really sure. It was a little dark. I didn't really see him do anything, which was contradictory to what he had told me to my face. Rucker insists that Fassett's original statement clearly detailed how Lewis was an aggressor in the fracas, but that that statement was never introduced at trial and has still never seen the light of day. Rucker tells me that until this moment, nobody in the world outside of a small group of lawyers knew that Fassett's statement existed. I ask Rucker why the limo driver's original statement was never introduced, and he tells me that his boss, Paul Howard, the DA, took the lead at trial despite not having tried a case in years. And according to Rucker, Howard was a little bit rusty. I played organized basketball and after college, I played in several basketball leagues. And at various points, I was pretty good, right? If you took me out behind the studio right now and gave me a basketball and said, hey, Clint, let's play some one-on-one. -on -one. Let me tell you something, man. You would look at me and in five minutes, you would say, I don't think this guy has ever played before in his whole life. 
That is what it was like. You know, there's a courtroom mental state you have to be in. There's a courtroom physical state you have to be in. It's grueling work to stand up and try a case. In his prime, Paul Howard was a stellar prosecutor. He became Fulton County's first African-American DA in 1997 and would serve over two decades in that role. But by 2000, he wasn't a trial lawyer anymore. The DA is a bureaucrat, a politician. The people that we picked to handle these kinds of high-profile cases, they were all warriors. And that's what you have to have when you're in a fight like this. And unfortunately, Mr. Howard took a very prominent role in the case, but he had not been in a courtroom in over 10 years. And so the decision was made that he would handle the opening statements. He did the closing argument. Um, he took most of the prominent witnesses to include Mr. Fawcett. I didn't really pay that much attention because I just thought it was a verbal argument. And then Ray went over there and told him to knock the shit off and get back in the truck. And what happened at that time? All I saw was Ray come up with like that and said, knock the shit off him. I didn't see him throw the punch. I didn't see it land or nothing. Dwayne Fassett, whose testimony was considered the backbone of the prosecution's case, refused to place Ray Lewis in the fight once he got on the stand. There were no details about Lewis holding Lawler's arms back to expose his chest to fatal stabs. Fassett gave the prosecution nothing, and Howard didn't push back. He let Fassett tell a completely different story without referencing Fassett's original statement. I think he felt at the time like I'm the elected district attorney. It's my name on the indictment. I made the decision to charge him. I should be the person out front bearing the heat. In hindsight, now I don't think he feels the same way. We had lots of other high-profile cases that came down the pipe after this and he's never come back into a courtroom again. Detective Ken Allen agrees that Paul Howard was not the man to prosecute this case and believes that Howard put politics above justice. When you take a look at the long-term factor of it and the fact of Paul Howard's involvement and him constantly being on the news about this, ESPN and the rest of it, he had nothing to lose. Victims were from Ohio, suspects from Miami and Baltimore. It's not going to impact him as far as the local elections and his district attorney part of it. But what does, he gets to be a household name. He gets to be on the news. He gets to be doing interviews. I mean, NFL Sunday has a spotlight and all of a sudden he's on it going into millions of homes. I think that ego came to play as opposed to justice for two victims that happened in our city. Howard was woefully ill-prepared, and the prosecution's case was completely lost after his handling of Facet. Rucker explains that there was an easy remedy available to Howard, one that every trial lawyer in the country should know, that would have allowed him to impeach Facet and introduce the limo driver's original statement. I wish I had videotaped it, but I didn't. I audiotaped it, but this is why his recorded statement never got presented during the trial. If you testify the way you did during your interview, the jury gets what they're supposed to hear and everything is fine. But if you get on the witness stand and you change your statement so that it's inconsistent with the interview you gave to me previously, and I have it recorded in any way, shape, form, or fashion, 
on paper, with an audio tape, with a videotape, I could introduce that prior statement as long as I lay certain foundational questions. There's a process you have to go through. So I have to ask you questions like, did you actually give a prior statement? I have to have you affirm that. The prior statement that you gave, was it recorded in any way? I have to get you to affirm that. Your prior statement that was given, was it given with specificity on this date, around this time, and to this person? I have to have you affirm that. And once I lay those foundational criteria, then I can ask you directly, Mr. Fawcett, isn't it true that in your prior statement to me, you said Ray Lewis held Lawler so that Sweeting could punch him in the chest with a knife? Didn't you tell me that? And if he admits it, I got him. If he denies it, then I get to play the statement to the jury, where it's your voice saying, Ray Lewis pulled his arms back so that Sweden could punch him in the chest with a knife. And then once the jury hears that prior inconsistent statement, then everybody's looking at Mr. Fawcett like, you're lying. Why are you lying? So then that allows me as the prosecutor to go in and have them understand the level of influence that Ray Lewis may have over him that might cause him to want to color his statements, not only about Ray Lewis, but about other people. So now once I have his credibility kind of shook in that manner, the jurors are more apt to say, oh, we see what's going on now. This is not just a railroad of Ray Lewis. They really got to this guy. And that never happened. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Former Atlanta prosecutor and district attorney Paul Howard is an intimidating figure. A hulking six foot eight, he's the uncle of former NBA star Dwight Howard. We've heard Howard's prosecution skills were rusty before taking the lead on this case. But I don't know if rust is a reasonable excuse for his mistakes. Howard's inability to execute a simple legal procedure could have changed the entire course of history. Instead, Dwayne Fassett's original statement never saw the light of day. However, if we can find Fassett's original statement, we have a legitimate smoking gun. 
a never-before-heard depiction of the fight from an eyewitness who everyone agrees had the best vantage point. I believed Mr. Fawcett. I thought he was credible. I thought he was talking against his own interest, which made his statements even more believable. You know, why would I lie so that I'm going to get hurt by it? People normally lie to help themselves, not to hurt. He broke down and cried at some points during the interview. I believed him. After handling some high-profile cases, now I have a different perspective. I would have treated Mr. Fawcett a lot differently. I would have probably insulated him more. I would have done more to protect him from the outside pressures. I spoke with Dwayne Fawcett's lawyer, David Irwin, who told me what he remembered about his client leading up to the trial. Fawcett. I haven't talked to him in 15 years. And he was a very sad character, and he was very upset about this whole thing. If you've seen the videos or the pictures in the paper, you can see the torture he went through. He gave him a story on the night that it all happened when he was exhausted. He adores Ray Lewis. He would say that the homicide detectives pressured him into giving an inculpatory statement about Ray hitting somebody. When he was under oath at the trial, his best recollection was different than his statement to the police, which they, he would say, coerced out of him and threatened him. And, and I'm on the record as saying that he was ill-treated by the police. And I stand by that. Irwin insists that Fassett was pressured into giving his original statement and then said this about the case as a whole. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes by the police and the investigators. They just can't help themselves. It just happens over and over and over again. They make big mistakes in the biggest cases. I don't know why that is. You'd think they'd want to cover every base and make sure everything was completely kosher. But it happens over and over again. Just look what happened in O.J. Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. Clint Rucker ardently denies that Fassett was pressured, but agrees with Irwin when it comes to the prosecution's many mistakes, one of which Rucker himself owns up to. He regrets how he handled his final interview with Fassett. At the time, we didn't play the tape for him to let him listen to it again. In hindsight, we probably should have, but we didn't. And I think that had we done it, it may have put him in a different mindset once he actually took the stand knowing, okay, they got me on tape. But we just kind of said, we've got this tape. We got your interview. You still stand by the fact that you did see him pull his arms back behind his back. And he was like, yes, 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 yes. And so he affirmed all the things that we wanted and expected to get out of him when he got to court. But when he got on that witness stand, underneath those lights, <sighs> sitting right in front of Ray Lewis, man, let me tell you something. He melted like some ice cream on the sidewalk at Piedmont Park, man, here in Atlanta in the summertime. He just melted. It was excruciating for him, man. And, um, you know, I, I get it. I get it. But that was something that the world never found out about. And they should have, because that's the truth. If Howard would have impeached Facet and introduced the tape of his original statement, could it have been enough to sway the jury? 
Fassett had a personal and monetary interest in protecting Ray Lewis. If he put the star linebacker in the middle of the brawl, who's to say that the entire trial doesn't shift in that moment? After Howard's error, Rucker planned to get Fassett back on the stand. But then, he got a call. After this particular day, when we weren't able to get the statement in with Mr. Fassett, this particular lawyer, who's my friend, called me and said, hey man, stop by my house on your way home. Rucker's friend was a member of Lewis's defense team. It's probably about 9.30 at night. And, um, and we sat in his study and had a drink. And he said to me, you know it's over with. And I said to him with my best poker face, no, it's not. What we're planning on doing is we're going to get Mr. Fawcett back. We're going to recall him as a witness. And we're going to script out what should be asked of him. And we're going to lay these foundational questions so that we can get his prior inconsistent statement in. Or he's going to make the admission that he actually told us that this is what he saw. And so this particular lawyer said to me, no, you're not. He says, you're never going to find Mr. Fawcett. Wow. And I took a big swig of that cognac, and I said, uh, what are you talking about, man? And he said, man, listen, Mr. Fawcett is on a plane somewhere, headed out of the country. And we've got a letter from his doctor that says that he is psychologically and emotionally unable to participate in this trial any further. And so the statement was never heard. It was never played for the jury uh, or for the community or, or for anyone to hear. And it died a quiet death. Paul Howard and Mike Smith each had their own agenda and it would be hard to argue that justice was their sole focus. We've uncovered a lot, but Dwayne Fassett's original statement is our holy grail. It died a quiet death and has been buried for over 20 years. Can we bring it back to life? We gotta get that Fassett tape. Yeah, just doing open records. I would ask for the certificate of discovery because that will list all of the audio and somewhere in my basement man I've got a Ray Lewis case a box somewhere I'll look and see coming up on the Raven it has to go somewhere don't throw it away that evidence has to be stored so in this particular case the place to start is the Fulton County District Attorney's Office it was absolutely self-defense. They were assaulted. They were, you know, no doubt Oakley was hit over the head with a champagne bottle. Don and I had a long-standing relationship, and to the extent that trust was involved, I figured I could trust him. And he says, I'm sorry, Steve. Ray met with them today and yesterday. So Ray gave a very fulsome statement to the DA in the office. And essentially what he told the DA was... We were attacked. We were assaulted by these guys from Akron. They jumped us, and Ray was in the limo, never got out of the limo. 
The Raven is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Journeyman in association with Odyssey. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. I'm the executive producer on behalf of Journeyman. Alex Vespested is our lead producer and editor on behalf of Tenderfoot Labs. Patty Cotter is our producer. Tracy Kaplan is our supervising producer. Paul Kusheri and Sydney Evans are associate producers. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner and Dayton Cole. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Trial archival provided by Court TV. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, The Nord Group, Ninning Moran and the Moran family, Russell Raffner, Alyssa Gozarka, James Yu, and Todd Baines. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. For more podcasts like The Raven, search Tenderfoot TV on your favorite podcast app or visit tenderfoot.tv. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Raven. If you want to listen to next week's episode right now, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus for early access. Tenderfoot Plus is available on Apple Podcasts or tenderfootplus.com.